Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. Well, look at us, here at episode 30 of Therapy for Humans. Thanks for joining me. We find ourselves in the middle of a global meltdown. Well, I don't know, actually... A lot of other parts of the world seem to be getting their shit together, but as usual, we are pushing the envelope. Go America. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about this at all today. I mean, I just did, but that's the end of it. You know what happened? Amy from Seattle emailed me. I don't know Amy from Seattle, but she emailed me and she said she loves the podcast and she had a couple of questions. So here we are. It only took me. God, how long? Too long. Sorry, Amy. Too long. But here we are. So her first question is, how men process or don't process breakups? How do men like make it look so easy? Finding closure on breakups. Did the relationship mean more to me than to him or her? Or is he or she just good at hiding it? Okay, well, that's an interesting topic. I don't know that men are necessarily... Um, I don't know that they necessarily have an easier time with breakups, but I do think that a lot of men, most men in our culture anyway, are shown or taught not to show the pain that breakups cause us. So, um, you know, often just side note, when I get new male clients, the more stereotypically masculine they are, the more likely they are to just come in and like completely lose it and start sobbing. Um, so this tells me that there is not a space out there in the world where, these types of men feel safe enough to do that. So I certainly would not take their lack of visible emotion as a sign that the relationship did not mean anything to them. As far as closure goes, I think it can be tricky to seek closure based on your ex's reaction to the breakup. In part because, as I just said, you may not be seeing anything even approaching their depth of emotion around it. And in part because your closure is your job. And I'll also add in there that if it was a messy breakup, they won't be motivated to care for you around that. They're not going to show you how upset they are because they want you to think that it didn't mean anything to them so that you hurt more and it's really effective and it's really fucking stupid and it happens all the time. Anyway, seeking more closure with them if it was messy will likely lead to more pain for you. Breakups suck. They hurt like pretty much nothing else. It is a grief process, but one that calls in kind of all of our own insecurities. What did I do? I wasn't pretty enough, cool enough, good enough in bed. I don't make enough money. My family is a mess. I can't dance. My cooking sucks. I drink too much. I'm not smart enough. My car is an embarrassment. I can't keep up on hikes. I don't understand the rules of cricket. Okay. Well, no one understands the rules of cricket, but really the list is endless. And when the sun goes down and all of our insecurities come out to play, piled on top of that smile on that fucker's face, looking like he could care less if he was in the relationship or not, it gets pretty brutal. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Don't judge your inside by other people's outside. You don't know what's going on in there. You will always come up short if you do that. Find your closure within. Take some time to own your part in the failing of that relationship so you don't end up repeating the same mistakes over and over again, and let their part be their part. The longer and deeper the relationship, the longer it's going to take to be okay. And when you're ready, remember that the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. 
Okay, Amy's questions continue. The second one is, interested in hearing about psychotherapy degrees in education, the process of becoming a therapist, and its pros and cons. This is interesting, actually, because I just had a, re- a conversation with a client yesterday about social work degrees. So I can really only speak to my own experience. Um, I went with a master's degree in social work, commonly known as an MSW, and then took a clinical track, passed the board exam, and accrued the requisite number of supervised hours to receive my LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. I think the number of hours is somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000. It's about two, two full years of supervised work before they kind of let you go out on your own. Um, so the LCSW allows me to practice privately as well as supervise others. Um, other paths to this work include other various master's degrees in psychology or counseling, I personally like the MSW because it's a bit more diverse. Um, Many corporate environments are hiring people with this degree, uh, more and more so. Um, Sometimes even over folks with MBAs because of the broad perspective that we get in this field. Uh, The tagline for the overall lens that we use in social work is person in environment. Um, So we don't just look at the client in a bubble. We make sure that we're taking into account all of the other factors in their life that might be contributing to their personal struggles. So in a corporate environment, we might shift that to look at workplace culture, social responsibility, interpersonal relations, that kind of thing. Um, In my mind, the single most important thing for anyone looking to pursue a career in one-on-one therapy with others is to find a training program that will force you to square away as much of your own shit as possible. I loved my master's program. I went to the DU Four Corners Extension Program here in Durango. And for two years, I spent a good chunk of my week with the same 25 people who were all going through the same thing. That cohort model made a big difference in terms of the level of connection that we all had with one another. That having been said, I learned very little about how to actually do counseling in that program. I was fortunate enough to be accepted into an internship at our local college counseling center. And you can find lots on there through my blogs and and other podcasts where I talk ad nauseum about my experience there, but that's where the magic happened for me. It literally changed my life, and I honestly shudder to think of what kind of therapist I would be without that process. Maybe I wouldn't totally suck at it, but I do think I would have had more of me in the way than if I had not gone through that process. Um, Basically, the training program was run by all of the senior staff members uh, at the Fort Lewis College Counseling Center, along with their amazing admin at the time. And They took their roles as our mentors very seriously, and they allowed us a space to, uh, and sometimes insisted that we dig into anything and everything that was holding us back, that we were afraid of, and especially that we were ashamed of. All that shit got some big-ass loving spotlights shown on it so we could decide what we really needed to keep and what was time to let go of. In short, we did intensive therapy along with learning some very concrete and specific therapeutic chops to use when we were sitting with clients. Not everyone in the program took maybe full advantage of the opportunity, but those who did really reaped massive rewards, both personally and professionally. And the other members of the training program that I went through with remain my go-to referrals for clients as well as for my own supervision needs. So unfortunately, my experience is not typical. Um, Most of the folks in my DU cohort did not get the training that I got. They had other internships that were not focused on them in the same way, Um, in fact, not remotely. Um, And most people who have been to a few different therapists have run into therapists who have not done their work. I know I have. And 
it's an environment that can lend itself to poor choices and bad advice. And don't get me wrong, I fuck up, we all do, but the more you do your work on yourself, the more of your own shit you can get out of the way and the less shit you bring into the room with you when you sit with a client. It's cleaner and therefore it's more effective. So you asked about pros and cons. Obviously from my little rant there, I feel like anyone wanting to do this work needs to do their own work first and then find a training program that can support them in furthering that work along the way. If you can't find a training program that can do that for you, then make sure that you're engaged in really good therapy and that will get you there as well. It doesn't have to be you know, a, a clinical group setting. Um, you can do your own work, but you're gonna have to pay for it. Um, anyway, back to the the programs in general, often students don't make it through this work. It's too hard emotionally on them. Um, or more typically, they don't do the work and they get their degree and then they spend their lives saying stupid shit and damaging their clients. Um, often they work from a place of ego or they have big blind spots or they get burned out and stop listening. There's no shortage of ways for this work to go wrong. On the upside, I love this work. It's by far the most rewarding and most difficult job I've ever had. And honestly, it feels weird to call it a job, even though obviously that's what it is. Um, it's really a humbling privilege to be granted the trust that my clients place in me. Some weeks are rough. Some clients are in a lot of pain. Some of them you just can't leave at the office at the end of the day. They're they're sitting there on the couch next to me while I'm watching TV. They go for walks with me. They're waiting for me when I wake up at night. Obviously, I'm talking metaphorically. I don't actually bring my clients home with me physically. <laughs> I get in trouble for that. Um, but you find ways to set them down for a while because you have to, because this work requires us to make space for ourselves so we can show up fully for the next client, but it's not for everyone. Sometimes you hear stories that you know will never leave you. Our clients share images with us that then become part of us. And these images are sacred in the truest sense of the word. Some of them unspeakably sad or frightening, but I honestly don't see that as a burden. I see that as a gift. Sometimes something gets shared that will stay forever between the two of you, you and your client. They've been carrying it around for years and they need to share it somewhere safe. So you hold it for them and you hold it between the two of you and it becomes a place of intense connection. No one else in the world will ever hear about it. That connection is what allows really profound work to take place. Once the trust is there at that level, you can go places that no one else can go with that person. They can hear hard stuff that needs to be heard and often, even more importantly, they can hear the good stuff that they dismiss from every other person in their lives. But you, as this trusted person, can tell them all about how amazing they are, and they can believe it because of that connection, because that trust is there. So that's why I love this work. Okay. Amy's final question is tox toxic narcissistic mother-daughter relationships, cutting toxic relationships out of one's life. Man. Okay. So narcissism is a rough thing and it's real. And if you don't know what it looks like, there's a pretty solid example sitting in the Oval Office. And I don't say that lightly and I don't say that with any sort of uh, delight. It's, it's pretty brutal, um, but it is a pretty obvious example um, that's pretty easy to come by. So there you have it. Um, there's often a strong need to be the center of attention and to be praised loudly and often. Um, when this doesn't happen, that person can shift into a rage and take out their frustrations on anyone handy. Obviously, being the child of a narcissist means that you will not be nurtured in a healthy way, and too often there is a high level of emotional abuse. 
we often hear the term gaslighting used about this dynamic between parent and child um, in narcissistic relationships. And I've talked about gaslighting before, and I think the term is overused, but in this particular dynamic, um, especially with children, I think it's an appropriate term. Um, Basically, the child is uh, over time made to feel like they're crazy um, for calling out things that they know to be true. And obviously, that can be a really damaging thing for a child to go through. Um, As in all toxic relationship situations, getting out and away can be tricky, but it's also crucial for you to be able to live your life on your own terms and start the work of taking back your life. If you want to try to keep your mother in your life, you will need to set rock-solid boundaries with her and hopefully enlist the help of other family members and or a skilled therapist who is willing to do family sessions. You need to get clarity around what's real and what's not in terms of the interplay between you and your mom. And by that, I mean that you need to be able to recognize when valid issues are being raised and be willing to own your part in that. And you need to be able to recognize when her illness is causing her to spin off into places that should not be tolerated by you. This is a really fine line sometimes. It can be hard to tell which is which, and especially in the moment. Sometimes it's impossible to decipher. Ideally, your mom would be working with a therapist who is allowed by her to name her disorder and call out when she's tipping into it. And honestly, just like with borderline personality disorder, this is pretty rare for someone who has this affliction to be in a place where they can actually hear that they do have a personality disorder that's causing some cognitive distortion for them. But it does happen. And when that person can handle that, it makes a profound improvement in their lives. But again, barring that, it's up to you to set the boundaries. It's also essential that you seek help in untangling the emotional shit show that your relationship with your mom has made of your own sense of self. Often the kids of narcissistic parents are subjected to constant manipulation around their own sense of worth. And it's basically based on how the parent is feeling and what their psycho-emotional needs are in the moment. So for instance, like when it serves your mom for you to be seen as a perfect child, then that's what you are. But if that tips into you getting praise when mom doesn't get praise, then she's going to throw you under the proverbial bus. And so the path through this for you is to start sorting out again, kind of what's real. You need to enlist the help of others who know you well and who are themselves healthy and intact humans. Use them as an anchor, an accurate mirror for you to see who you really are. Not just the good stuff, but all of it, so that you can start sorting out what doesn't need your attention on your part and what does. Well, Amy, thank you again for your questions. I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry it took so long to get to them. Hopefully you hung in there and are still interested in hearing what I have to say about it. And for the rest of the world out there, keep fighting the good fight and don't get bogged down in bullshit. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 